and welcome to a new entry of the High Tech Local Podcast. Today we're going to talk about sports and technology. And to help us with that subject, we were able to invite Siobhan Heaton and Gary Williams. Siobhan is a senior software tester with extensive work experience in sports. Siobhan, thank you very much for joining us in this episode of the podcast. How are you doing? And could you do a small introduction about yourself? Sure. Uh, I'm doing really well, thanks. Um, so as you said, I've a software tester. I've been working in technology for about 10 years now and in sports-specific technology for six or seven of those years. Oh, that's great. That's great. Following Siobhan, we have Gary. Now, Gary is an experienced automotive design engineer, OutSystems local developer, product inventor, and previous podcast co-host. Thank you very much for joining us again. How are you doing, Gary? What have you been up to? Hi, Mario. Yes, I'm well, thanks. I've been busy. Work's quite busy. We've got lots on at the moment. And uh, other than that, I've been homeschooling my two primary school children and learning lots about the things they're up to, fronted adverbials, things that, um, phrases really, I guess, and, and sort of terminology that I'm not used to, but I've been thrown in the deep end with that. Um, and other than that, actually refereeing fights between the two of them. <laughs> and I'll certainly be glad when they go back to school. I get to love it. Um, so talking about our subject of the day, technology has helped develop and push the envelope in many different industries, from farming to health. But a sector where we don't usually think of technology is in sports. So talking about technology in sports, where does it start and where does it end? We know that tech has always played a role in sports gear, for example. Nowadays, athletes use Fitbits, wristbands, and all kinds of analytic tools to improve their performance. In your opinion, how big is the impact of digital technology nowadays? Yeah, I'll go first, Mario. I've got a different take go for probably from Siobhan's angle. Mine's more really around my background in, in sort of manufacturing, specifically automotive, and the things that I've experienced firsthand, manufacturing and test um, of equipment. So just to put it in context, athletes obviously use Fitbits and things like that to improve their performance. And I think that's just one aspect of it. My side of interest really is all about the manufacturing process and how technology has improved um, that whole life cycle of a part and a design. So so take an example of a race car, for instance, and the olden day process would have been to sketch something out on on paper, make some parts prove those parts out uh, on the car um, and that, that whole process will be quite lengthy and uh, and a cost involved in that whereas the tech these days designing the parts in in 3d applying all the technology advances that we've got in 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 that sort of design cycle of um, just creating the part in the in the first place in 3d is a great thing but then applying materials to it pushing it on into the CAE packages the computer aided engineering processes um, so where we can look at things like fluid dynamics, um, cooling, pred predictions really of models um, and the correlation over time between if you tested a part in real life for a certain um, type of test versus the digital twin, uh, as it's known, the digital version of, of that test, the correlation, the results, the quality of those results has improved so much over time that there's, there's really good um understanding and belief in those in those numbers that that come out and and it just reduces the whole design side um cycle um and i was watching a, a video about williams uh, race team not so long ago where they were doing some modifications designing the part in 3d pushing it through their cae process and then from that put it straight into an f1 simulator that they had and they could program that simulator to um change the, the the performance of the vehicle 
and they could predict whether that design change would be um, of use or not with the benefit, what the benefits were. So straight into the simulator, in test, and that whole cycle, none of it was a physical um, part made at all. It was all digital, and that process can just take you through from first theming of an idea to actually putting a real part on a car but trying to get it right first time is not always the case but it's it's that that process is now much much shorter and also on on the side of the actual technology that um is used to produce these results that hpc improvements so that the, the available computing power these high performance computers the software meshing models there's, there's so much they can do you can even predict how something will sound where dirt will splatter on a car if it goes through some grit, you know where this where the stone rash might be, um, reflections on on the headlights, reflections in the in the driver's cockpit, uh, all manner of things can all be simulated, and and that that process uh, and that technology is is growing in leaps and bounds. So that's the design side of things. But then when you think about the next step, which is the actual manufacturing of parts, again in the olden days you'd, you'd have a drawing, or even if you had a CAD model, you'd still have to maybe program an NC machine, make those parts, make jigs and fixtures to hold those parts. It'd be, it'd be still be a long process. But now with the, the advent of 3D printers, which I know have been around for a while, but the, the materials that these things can actually produce parts out of nowadays aren't these flimsy little plastic things. Actually, you can actually produce um, workable, usable parts out of steel, for instance, carbon fibre, um, all sorts of materials can be injected into the sort of base resin and the quality of parts in terms of accuracy and the robustness of them means, again, they can take a, a 3D design straight into some CAE testing to prove what they think it might do in the real world, but then actually make a real part all very quickly without any tooling. All that lead time is really compressed. So the technology... Um, in all that for me is really really interesting and it's just really pushing on and on and it's great to see and uh, i'm sure I'll, I'll hand over to siobhan now i'm sure she's got a different take on on her her side of things from her experience um well i mean i wholeheartedly agree with everything you mentioned in the the changes that and the way that they can feed into things like simulators so that whether it's drivers or athletes in other fields are able to then sort of have that training and practice in a safe environment and that they're aware of those changes before they're, you know, before they go out and do it for real and risk injury or anything like that. So that I think's made a big difference. And I think the the wearables part that you mentioned, Mario, that if we look at what's available at the consumer level now, things, you know, the the Apple Watch being able to track your blood oxygen level and give an ECG reading and things like that, it's it's incredible to think that you know Fitbits were. Um, sort of the forefront of wearable technology eight, nine years ago. And then you look at how quickly that's evolved from just tracking your steps and your, you know, how how effectively you're sleeping, whether or not you're you're moving too much in your sleep. And then you look at what we have now at the consumer level. So then at the professional level, what these athletes are able to monitor. So it's one thing having sports science labs at their clubs or the international associations but now they can be given equipment to take home so that they're able to monitor they have proper sensors within their mattresses so that they know how well they're sleeping more so than just are they rolling over is their wrist moving much having proper health readouts for for things that they you know it's not a case of having a doctor come in once a week and having a professional medical person review that that they're able to monitor so much of their day-to-day uh, performance and rest as well and recovery so there's just been 
huge leaps where there's the budget for it at least it's made a real difference I think the um the cycling teams are really quick to cotton on to the impact of rest and recovery and so I think it's you know team sky were one of those teams that started for things like the tour de france they were shipping the same mattresses for every location so they were traveling with those on buses for their or lorries for their riders to make sure they had that you know that they could replicate the same sleep environment day after day and you know you think of that extra cost and the logistics of having to move that stuff and I think some teams would write it off but yeah I mean there's the effect of taking your favorite pillow (laughs) your mattress (laughs) oh wow that's uh, quite an insight do you reckon that there are any big trends that we have to keep an eye on for technology and sports yeah, I read uh, an article recently. It was all about um, data monetization in the sports industry, and it was a Deloitte article, I think it was. And it was all about the fan engagement, player and team performance, and sports betting, and the market for this sort of um, data and aggregators um, was just basically talking about it heating up and increasingly employing data analytics to guide decision-making and support for marketing and that kind of thing. So in terms of fan engagement, it was all about um, data-driven platforms and artificial intelligence to sense the sentiments of fans, analysing the data to better understand fan behaviour and connect with those fans in a very specific way to generate a better fan experience and more expectation that with that that sort of ability to engage with the right fans, you can fuel the monetization um, in an integrated sort of e-commerce and socially active platform uh, within the whole fan ecosystem. So more than ever before, the the big data side of things has been used in sports to to get those insights um, from the fan side of things, but obviously the player metrics and team performance and those insights change how games are played, managed, managed and the, the money side of things, and this is the thing that really stuck out to me, was that according to the research, the sports analytics industry is expected to reach nearly $4 billion by 2023 as those teams and coaches, broadcasters and rights holders harness that data um, to improve performance and connect with the fans. And it's it's an eye-watering amount of money, but you can see how this big data is really influencing the way that uh, teams and, and sport works in that arena, in the live live events and the prediction models. Oh, my gosh. And they're debating if they should spend $1.9 billion in a care package. In, well, I'm going to call it care. Yeah. In the in care package for COVID in America. They're debating it. Should we do it? <laughs> it's um. I was at a talk from some guys from KPMG and they mm-hmm. were d- talking about the, you know, fan engagement and how to monetize it. This was about five years ago and they were talking about the, so one of the ways that I think lots of people think about technology in sport is the, you know, potentially negative side, things like VAR in football and the, they can see it as interfering if there's a video referee and it takes ages for a decision to be made and, you know, it might go against your team and what have you. But these guys at KPMG were basically saying that you can use facial recognition technology in cameras that kind of scans the crowd and you can see when it goes from kind of tentative excitement through to the turning point where they've had enough of waiting and they just want the answer. And one of the things they were proposing doing was kind of selling this data so that, you know, a fast food company could choose to sponsor that particular stadium or that team or that match. Then when the decision's being made, you'd have like a, you know, spinning bucket of chicken or or whatever it is. 
And then at the point that you see the crowd turn, then you announce the decision. So just before they've kind right. of lost all will, it would then be, you know, that the tries awarded or the goals awarded. Oh, there's a special place for people. <laughs> yeah, it's like a, a real sinister turn. Yeah. Oh, man. Can you imagine? Oh, yeah. Let them wait just a few more seconds. <laughs> yeah. And while we're doing that, we're selling publicity space. Ta-da. <laughs> That's quite a turn of events. That just reminds me of that film, Ready Player One. And one aspect of that is the baddies are trying to take over this the virtual mm. world, the oasis, um, with with the with the plan of selling all the real real estate on the screen for all the advertising and a lot of the screenshots around that that particular scene were all about. There was hardly any screen left of the actual game itself. There was just these adverts that were all served yeah. um, just to purely monetize the whole thing. I don't know; it's an extreme version of what we just talked about, but it's just um, you know, it's just, it it just shows you where, where yeah. the thoughts are along with that. You know, this big data and monetizing um, just the sentiment of people and serving those adverts in the right place at the right time. It's quite scary when you think about it. Well, I mean, if we really think about it, we probably are not that far away from that with Facebooks and Instagrams and whatnot, everything being interconnected. Uh, yeah, probably not. It's scary. <laughs> the more I think about it. <laughs> it, it feels like sports falling into the same trap as, you know, wider society. People see value in data, but they haven't quite worked out what that value is. So they're harvesting yeah. so much of it. And it's whether or not that data is actually going to fuel good decisions. Is it going to change a team's approach or an individual athlete's approach to something? Or are they just gathering that data and then it's clouding their decision making? And I think it's happening in all areas. It's not just, it's certainly not unique to sport. It's like you say, the, even with the facial recognition now, we are, we are starting to reach a point where we're starting to trace a profile in the trends of what people like and don't like and mm. how to control those trends scary stuff <laughs> uh, picking up from that one what lessons can we take from the technology used in sports and applied in other sectors you know the any ideas for that the, there was um an irish t uh, an irish startup that were looking at developing something that they were pitching as basically a fitbit for cows okay that's and exactly it was, what I'm it was a sensor Yeah, it was a sensor that could basically um, provide information to do with that cow's general health, like its nutritional needs, its you know temperature, whether it was taking enough fluids on board, all that kind of thing, so that you would know okay. how well it was performing in terms of the milk it was capable of delivering that day, and you know on a weekly basis. And so, yeah, I think there's potential for overlap industries that you wouldn't expect, like farming. Even to control and trace where the, the animals are in your yeah. big farm, that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. So security is always big news, isn't it? It's 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 around all the time. There's always some kind of news headline about hacking into corporations, data being stolen, more recently into the election processes. Um, so there's, there's this data that's swimming around everywhere, and it, and arguably, lots and lots of data is being collected because it can, and it's being collected and kept because it can and sometimes there's no use for that data yet, but it's being kept maybe because there might be some use for it in the future, I guess. Um, but clearly, everybody's got to be careful about that. And uh, from a sporting side of aspect, aspect um, confidentiality of this, of this data, um, getting the, that data into the wrong hands, your competitors' hands, when you've just developed something um, that's you know a, a great innovation on a particular part of the car or whatever, um, 
teams have got to have that protected everybody needs that protected for those those um, aspects you know the intellectual property yeah. aspects so i would think it's high up on on the agenda of most people and and as it should be too what about the security on on this type of information do you reckon that it's does it have any consideration in sports um yeah i think it's one of those that it's an ongoing conversation i'd say for in in lots of sports and there's some there's some high profile football teams for instance that are very paranoid about security and therefore everything that they collect is on prem they'll make sure that that is stored at their training ground on dedicated servers and they refuse to engage with any kind of cloud technology because they don't want to be susceptible to having that data hacked and they you know they feel that it would make them too vulnerable if it's something that's kind of stored in the cloud whereas for others they're looking at cost and what they can do and and so you know they're happy to to store all of their video and analysis in the in the cloud but i think an, another area that's interesting is around who owns that data So if mm. you're looking at a, an individual athlete's output, their physical output, and you're looking at health metrics, is that data owned by the athlete themselves? It's their health and their, their vital statistics, as it were. And does it belong to the technology provider that's built the hardware and the software? Or does it belong to the club because it's their athlete and they're under contract? And it becomes messy when you're looking at sports where athletes represent a club, but also potentially their country as well. And there could be a, a conflict over what data can be, you know, if, if it's a club staff that also provide the service, the analysis services for the national team and yeah, giving those members of staff insight into their competitors at a club level. You know, there's a lot that is very, you know, it's a real gray area. I never thought about that. Okay, you have the, the club, But then you go represent the country, it gets mixed. Oh, yeah, that, that you know, like you said, that is a great area. I would imagine that depending on the sport, this would vary in priority, the security related with data. Yeah, absolutely. I would imagine that, I don't know, I'm not good at sports, but uh, maybe hockey, for example, it's not that important. But football, it's severe, uh, I would imagine. Yeah, definitely. And it's... It's strange because it's one of those that there's communities of these analysts, they all know each other. They've, you know, they were at university together or they've worked at clubs in previous jobs together or they've been at the same tournaments and they see each other a couple of times a year at repeat fixtures. But whereas in a sport like hockey, the games are played at a much faster turnaround. So you're likely to be playing every day in a World Cup rather than once or twice a week, which is what happens in football. And so in hockey, you would be that there's no kind of third party data provider that's providing generic statistics on every match like you have in football or rugby or basketball. And so you would have a bank of hockey analysts from every country that's at that World Cup and they're just watching all of the games every day in case their team is going to be drawn against one of them. And so all of those analysts can see what's on what is on each other's screens. They know what they're looking for and what different events they're tracking. Whereas football They're quite far apart that, you know, sometimes there'll be entirely different sections of the stadium. Some might be inside and they'll make the opponent analysts be outside in the cold. You know, there's some mind <laughs> games that can happen where you're just trying to, you know, same as you do for the opposition changing rooms that, you know, turn the, the heating off and things like that. Just, you know, to try, oh, and, cheeky. try and gain an edge. <laughs> yeah. On another note that just occurred to me, like Gary was saying, uh, in motorsports, there the security has to be high. We're talking about prototypes. 
state-of-the-art technology. Uh, that That is a, an example where I would imagine, oh, something blew up, cover it. We cannot let the competition see this broken. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was a marshal some years ago at Alton Park, the race circuit in Cheshire. Um, Showing my age now, this was back in the early 90s. And it was the time the JPS Norton came out and it came into the, the biking arena as, and it just it was just doing so well. That team looked great, they performed well, it was just doing so well and it was their Wankel engine. So it was kind of, even though it wasn't brand new technology, it was new within this sort of sphere really of the, of the bike racing. And um, I was on a particular sector when one of these JPS Nortons went down. And ordinarily when a bike went down, we just run out and pick up the bits, obviously make sure the ride is okay and make sure the circuit is safe. But we'd pick up those parts to the bike and um, just pull them to one side. Now, when this 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 bike went down, the the pit crew were were there in no time at all, um, making sure they got absolutely every single part of that bike back. Um, they were so protective over it, and it all comes down to money, doesn't it? You know, and, and, and intellectual property. They'd obviously pumped so much money into developing their bike, and it was doing so well. And the last thing that they could afford to have is. Um, people finding a part you know and, and getting into the wrong hands and suddenly your ip is out in the public domain or you know with a competitor which is worse i guess and they're, they're making these parts or you know understanding the way that you're making your bike work faster yeah yeah keeping keeping the secret sauce a secret <laughs> what could drive tech in sports remember the movie moneyball that was an interesting mm-hmm. way to revolutionize the way the game was being played so what's your take on this what could drive a change in sports and technology? I think it feeds into the data collection we've mentioned earlier in that with Moneyball, it was looking at available, you know, data that was available to everyone, but they were looking at it in a different way and asking a completely different set of questions. It's interesting that the structure of teams in America is very different to in the UK, for instance. So in America, you'll have a general manager and they'll tend to oversee the the trading of players and the whole makeup of that team. But they're not kind of hands-on with the day-to-day coaching side of it. Whereas we don't really take that approach in the UK. It tends to be that um, whether it's a strategist for a racing team or a football manager, they're very hands-on with the the drivers and the players and what have you. They, you know, they know who those people are and they've tended to have careers involved in that particular sport whereas in the US the general managers could be business students with you know their college degrees could have absolutely nothing to do with that particular sport there's just I don't know what you know how they found themselves in that role but it's interesting that they have asked these questions and kind of that film really did shine a light on the importance of of data and what you can do beyond just the the stats for the game itself. It just occurred to me, imagine big data, AI analyzing all the sports stats from any specific sport and suddenly coming out with strategies that we never thought about it. That could be a a close future, or maybe it's happening now and we're not aware of. (laughs) Yes, Moneyball is an example of that sort of new way of thinking and approaching a problem from a completely different aspect. So in terms of tech and sports, if you think about F1 and the caps on spend to try and level the playing field, um, you clearly need to use tech or you know any, anything that you do it's got to be done um, to improve your lap times and it's got, it's got to be clever and smarter so that tech could improve a lap time um, so finding unique ways to improve 
the way you do things could be that that difference between winning or losing and when you're looking at the small amounts of time differences that 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 you need to be a winner versus a loser um you know it's it's certainly it's certainly achievable i guess even a slight change in something so uh yeah moneyball showed that benefit and it can be realized from that fresh approach yeah good point good point jumping to something closer to home for so to speak with COVID 19 how could tech help sports monetize the events and bring back the sports to the fans for me one of the interesting things is that you can look to if there are restrictions in place in terms of how many analysts can attend fixtures then i know that there's work that's been done to enable streaming of of matches so that the analysts can work from training grounds or their homes so if that means that people aren't if the staff aren't having to travel that saves time and money so that they can actually work on you know they can do what they want to do which is analyze the games they don't want to be traveling hours and hours in each direction so it frees up more time for them to actually create meaningful analysis but also will save the club some money and that's money that could be reinvested in other areas so whether that is hiring data scientists and looking to do more in that field or in other areas i think covid could have that sort of impact where it would force clubs to kind of reevaluate where they're spending their money and what what's worth it ultimately uh in terms of bringing fans back i don't know if if you've got any any insight there gary yes i'm aware of some technology that's that's pretty good that um he's trying to get people back into sports grounds again so there's a way of making sure that the people that are in attendance, which even if there's no fans, you've still got the teams and the staff, the arena staff, safety um, people, all manner of people that needed just to just to hold hold an event, even without fans. Um, but there's, there's ways of tagging people so that people's movements can be monitored to make sure there are no proximity violations, the right numbers of people are where, where they should be, uh, and all that can be audited and managed even even down to the point of the where these people are staying in the hotels and just making sure that everybody's safe and we do have that quick safe return to sports events glad to know that that is in the foreseeing of future with that we reach the end of our episode thank you very much yvonne and gary for taking time off your schedule to participate in this episode of the podcast and as usual also a big thank to everyone who is listening and hope you can join us on our next episode of high tech local podcast where, as always, we'll feature more guests and talk about more topics of importance to the tech world. See you soon. See ya. Bye. Thank you. See ya. Bye. Thank you.